Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 34. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Sorry the Drabblecast is running behind this week. I've been a busy little bee. It's hard doing a podcast as immensely and immeasurably amazing as the Drabblecast on a weekly basis, but we do what we can. The good news is, though, that the Drabblecast forum is finally up. You'll find a link on the website. You should go there as soon as plausible and join. You'll be in good company. Trust me. Feel free to have fun in the forums. I'd like to have the comments on the website limited to more general feelings about the story, like they usually are now, and more detailed analysis or commentary to be moved into the forums. Aside from being a space for us to run our various outlandish competitions and special programs, feel free to use the forums as a resource to promote other podcasts and books. Make friends, ask questions, share stories, sell your couch, or find true love. I, for one, think the whole cat earwax phenomenon needs a little more fleshing out. Also, some of you out there, I know, have seen, or at least know somebody who claims to have seen, a Yeti. Don't hold out on us. People, there are some neat things coming up in the future. I don't want to let the telephant out of the closet, but man, oh man, just wait till you see the things we've got planned for you guys in the months ahead. Mm-mm-mm. In the meantime, though, it's the Drab of Poetry Corner, baby. This week's poem is called The Truth About the Reaper from Basil Godovenos, a writer from Toronto. He's the author of Disjoint, available from lulu.com, and lives with his wife and two cats in Markham, Ontario. And he's obsessed with giants. A lot of people leave little tidbits like that out of their resumes, but we here at the Drabblecast value a healthy infatuation with mythical beasts above, well, pretty much everything. So here it goes. The Truth About the Reaper, by Basil Godovenos. Deep, deep in the bowels of the earth, which, contrary to popular belief, are deathly cold, there is little room. In it is a small desk with an uncomfortable metal chair. Lit only by a single tube of fluorescent light, it is home to a man. He is dressed in gray pants and dusty white shirt sleeves, Thick eyeglasses rest on his nose, his necktie is thin, his shoes give him blisters. His skin is extremely pale, and it sags at his eyes. He is short, overweight, and his hairline is grossly receded. He doesn't know his age. He has no memory of open air or the sun. He does not know what it is like to have loved ones, and he thinks he's never had any. He has but one purpose in life, his reason for being. His beady eyes dart over lists of names that include yours and mine. He is choosing those who will die today. Despite the cold, he sweats at the effort. Today's story is also one about choice. We bring you The Suit by G.W. Thomas. Mr. Thomas has appeared in over 350 different books, e-zines, and print magazines, including Writer's Digest, The Writer, Black October Magazine, and The Armchair Detective. 
His website is www.gwthomas.org. This story first appeared in Cthulhu Cultus, number 12, July 1998. We haven't had any Lovecraftian-type stories yet on the Drabblecast, so we're happy to bring you this one. So drop off your clothes to the dry cleaners. Without further ado, The Suit by G.W. Thomas. I had occasion to meet Randall Rivers only three times. That surprises you? Or is what astounds you the fact that a man I met only three times would leave me his entire fortune? The first time I encountered him was while I was in the employment of the Bakersville Agency. Rivers had an appointment with me to discuss a campaign of commercials for his fledgling auto dealership. Rivers was, as anyone who remembers his no-lemons-in-my-lot spots, a man of gigantic proportions, that is to say, obese. He draped his immense bulk in a two-piece suit of the finest vanilla ice cream white. This I remember because each time I met him, he had worn that particular garment. I suppose he might have worn three different suits of the same design and fabric, but for some reason I don't remember thinking this so. For all intents and purposes, I decided it was the same white suit. I do recall Rivers' entrance into my office as though it were yesterday, which it was not. It was almost four years ago. He got past my secretary, a very skillful Miss Clement, as if she were a rookie, and I looked up from my work to see the large man waddle into my room unannounced. <laughs> it's my way, boy, he said, by way of explanation, which was anything but an apology. I was between clients, and since Rivers was next, I let the matter ride. I calmed Miss Clement and then attended the mammoth visitor. Can I get you anything? I asked nervously, eyeing him. Coffee? Perhaps something stronger. I had to inform my guest that I had no liquor. <laughs> That's okay. I brought my own. He smiled, proffering a hip flask. I declined out of pretense as it was still early in the day. I want you to listen to me, boy. I want you to listen well. I need some of your adverts, and I need them done my way. You're following so far, boy. Uh, yes, Mr. Rivers. I, I think I understand your needs and your customer needs. Let's get something straight right now, boy. I don't like wasting my time on your high-brow office talk, so let's cut the crap. I'm paying for these adverts, and I call them the way I see them, which means shut up and let me do the talking. I was finding Rivers to be just as boorish and overbearing as he appeared. Perhaps this wasn't unusual considering his line of work. Without doubt, he knew how to talk. I'm sure he could have wrangled the devil out of his soul and sold him a car in the deal. So I let him talk. What I want from you and your company is a bunch of adverts with myself in my car lot 
telling all the good people about my fine automobiles. It has been done with good results. Hush now, boy. I'm talking. And I want some pretty young things and some short skirts and a clown for the kiddies and maybe an elephant. It's got to speak to the good people. I want them to know honest Randy Rivers is their friend. No, no, I take that back. Not just their friend, but a member of the family. I want to show the good people there is only one place to buy an automobile. I said nothing, waiting for him to continue. Well, boy, can you do that for me? Uh, yes, Mr. Rivers. We can easily set up a schedule of audience-directed spots using celebrity. I just want a yes or a no, boy. Yes. I feared to say more, but felt required to do so. But the details. Uh, are you deaf, boy? <laughs> Haven't you been listening to what I've been saying? I gave you the details. Pretty gals, elephants, and clowns. Of course, Mr. Rivers. Now, if you don't mind, I'll be running along. I've got automobiles to sell. With much less pomp than when he arrived, he left. And that was our first meeting. The second encounter was somewhat less abrupt, but no easier to comprehend. It was a year later, after I left Bakersville and had started my own advertising agency. In fact, the reason for our second meeting had to do with my own search for new accounts. I was looking for clients big and small. Randall Rivers was no longer a small customer. We met the second time at a cocktail party being held by a mutual friend, Natalie Ungers, the actress and owner of a small chain of beauty salons. I was trapped in a conversation with a man whose face, name, and topic evades me now. I saw the unmistakable bulk of Rivers enter with a slim woman in an evening dress, and I chose that opportunity to escape. I had financial reasons to drive me as well. Randall Rivers, I hailed, pushing my way past a group of Japanese businessmen. <laughs> well, hello there, he responded, smiling with broad, frog-like lips. I've been meaning to thank you for them adverts you sold me. I made a lot of money on them. I had heard rumors to that effect, though I doubted that our commercials had had much to do with it. His one car dealership had blossomed into several all over the country, not to mention new interests in boats, RVs, and small aircraft. He was fast becoming a very rich man. After a while, Rivers excused himself, wanting to say hello to our hostess, Miss Ungers. I watched him traverse the crowded room. He seemed physically different. It was not his attire, for that was unchanged. He wore the same ice-cream white suit, pressed and properly accompanied by tie, shirt, and shoes. It was his size that I noticed. He had lost weight, a lot of it. I would have guessed his initial poundage during our first meeting at about four hundred. Now it appeared to be closer to three. Though still not a small man, the loss was remarkable. 
His tailor had done a masterful job of redefining the suit to his new contours, for, as I've said before, I felt it was the same garment. The rest of the night was of little consequence, as most parties of that sort are after any long period of reflection. I did happen to run into Rivers again before I went home, this time without the company of his escort. He was in the kitchen, away from the main body of revelers, eating large mouthfuls of caviar on crackers and gulping liberal amounts of champagne. This struck me as odd, since I figured any man who could lose over a hundred pounds in a year's time would have to subsist on a diet of water alone. This did not appear to be the case. I asked if he'd mind me joining him. My motives were mostly business, but I couldn't help indulging in a perverse interest in this man. He must have read my thoughts. When over a mouthful of caviar, he said, You're wondering how I lost that there fat, aren't you? I had to admit, I was. What would you say if a certain someone had offered you all the success in the world for a mere hundred pounds a weight a year? Just useless fat, in return for the greatest fortune a man can get his fingers round. Would you take it? I wasn't sure if he was joking or not, but I played along with his hypothetical situation. Perhaps it was a party game. It would depend, I mustered. On what? On how much extra weight I had... I blushed, hoping I hadn't insulted him, and on when the process would stop. Well, say you're a big fat hog like me. So much for tact, I thought. Well, what about the second part? When does it stop? I don't rightly know, boy. I suppose that's just a risk you'd have to take. That seemed to be the end of the discussion. Rivers excused himself, and I realized too late I hadn't given him my sales pitch. All I could do was watch and admire that fine white suit as it disappeared into the crowd of partiers. My final episode with Randall Rivers is without doubt the most unusual of the three. We met completely by accident in the park by the river. I was walking my dog, as was my custom, after supper, when my dog became alarmed by something in a bush next to the cement walkway. It was Randall Rivers. I helped the man up, a gesture which normally would have been a job in itself, but was no longer so. The man could have been no more than ninety pounds. I didn't recognize him until I inspected his pale, shriveled face. He looked much older, though only two years had passed since our second meeting. His hair was graying and thin, his eyes roomy and dull. There was little doubt the man was dying. I sat him down on a bench. What's wrong with you? I asked, trying to hide my obvious distaste. He laughed a most horrible, bitter chuckle harsh as dry tree bark. Oh, they say it's a cancer, he gurgled. You know, 
It all started in this park, boy. After this, I wasn't sure what he said as his voice cracked and broke. I leaned closer to make out his words. Spittle rolled from his lip down the lapel of his bright white suit. I noticed then that he had had it tailored to his size once again. Always the right size, always impeccable. I, I was a hot dog vendor, he went on breathlessly. That's right, and I ate more than I sold. I got to be pretty big, didn't I? Oh, then one day, I found it. It liked me. It said, let's have us an agreement. What had he found? What was he talking about? Rivers was indifferent to my questioning, rattling on further. It would give me money, success, women, big automobiles. All I had to do was feed it. All it wanted was my fat. This was getting ridiculous. I demanded to know what he was talking about. My voice was loud, and I must have surprised him because he started coughing up blood. I decided to run to a phone and call an ambulance, but before I could move, he spoke again, and I stopped to listen. Ah, God help me, boy. Cut it off. Cut it off my body. I waited no longer. The man was obviously hallucinating about his disease, giving it a persona. He was mad with pain. I ran. And as I left, he shrieked at me. No, boy. Don't leave me here. Don't leave me with it. God damn you, boy. I will get even for this. By the time the ambulance arrived, Rivers was unconscious. The paramedics had him on a stretcher and in the wagon in seconds. I never saw him again. That's all I can tell you about Randall Rivers. Why he chose to write a new will on his deathbed, making me the sole heir to his wealth, I don't know. Perhaps it was a kind of payment for my actions at the end, there in the park. Whatever the reason, I'm grateful. I've never been a man in need, but now I'm very well off and successful. I lead an organization of worldwide advertising offices. <laughs> what? You're asking about my clothing. Well, yes, this is the vanilla white suit that Randall Rivers wore. It was left to me along with the rest of his belongings. Morbid? Wearing a dead man's clothes? I suppose. But it's such a nice suit, isn't it? So clean and wrinkle-free. So bright. And it fits so well. You can hardly tell I've lost 20 pounds, can you? Well, that was our story. I hope you enjoyed it. You know, everyone said it was gastric bypass surgery, but I always knew it was some sort of symbiotic lamprey bra that gave us the withering husk of a Star Jones you see today. Geez, can you see this story on The View? 
God help me, Barbara Walters. Cut this thing off me. Cut it off my bosoms. Yuck. Okay, I'm going to clean that mental image out with some feedback to episode 30 a few weeks ago. 2084 by Tom Williams. This story generated a good little amount of chitta-chatta about whether this was a utopian or dystopian tale. Rennie said, Delightful. I'd surely say it was utopian. I wish my clothes smelled like lemons. I wouldn't mind trading the existence of real lemons for that luxury. Adam asked, Wait, if lemons didn't exist, how would you know what your clothes smelled like? And then the ever-pertinent Mr. Tweedy said, This story takes the idea of caution to the extreme, as good satire should, and shows us a world where everyone is such a monumental wuss that contact with anything that is not 100% certified safe is absolutely intolerable. That's dystopian, man. These people live in pathetic little cages because they're too terrified to have any real experiences. Who cares if the cage smells like lemons? On that note, a nugget of Mr. Tweedy philosophy. Anything that's 100% safe probably isn't worth doing. What do you folks think about that philosophy? Ep, 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 don't answer. I can't hear you anyways. I'm a podcast. Go to the Drabblecast forum link at drabblecast.org and tell us what you really think. Don't worry, it's a perfectly safe and sterile environment to speak your mind. No risk involved. Well, that's all for this week. Tune in next week for episode 35. Send your stories of 2,000 words or less to drabblecast.org. If you like bluegrass music and alien life cycles that involve gestation inside human hosts, check out my CD at www.normsherman.com. Just one editor's pick at (laughs) cdbaby.com. That actually only cost me about 12 pounds of fat. The Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you can share this with everybody in the world. You just can't change it or sell it, boy. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, who's currently in China, helping the people there figure out how to absorb and envelop the U.S. economy even quicker by teaching them to speak English, and Luke Coddington, who was recently awarded the Nobel Prize for a crappiest fantasy football team. His reply, of course, was, I could care less. Oh yeah, and I'm Norm Sherman, reminding you that we're getting into the fall, people, and vanilla white suits are totally out. Save that shameful symbiote for the spring. By two Mexicans heavily built And with the slam of the door They had Tony on force With the rutabaga shoved to the hills With a rutabaga shoved to the hills A bear and a bunny are sitting in a forest Taking a dump The bear leans over to the bunny and says Do you ever have the problem of shit sticking to your fur? The bunny says Well, no So the bear grabs the bunny and wipes his ass.